Gospel accounts often appear in more than one of the Gospels. So, knowing that Chris just read Mark's version of it, I'd like to read you Matthew's version of the same text because there are a couple of additional details that each Gospel writer adds in that the others, for one reason or another, chose not to focus on. This is in Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she replied. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Lord God, as we come and open your word and examine again the words of Jesus, we are blown away by the surprising manner of words that he uses and the wisdom contained in them. And when Jesus speaks and people respond, constantly we see lives changed. Lord, in the midst of this challenging and often broken world, we ask that you would change our lives, that you would heal our hearts, that you would draw near in such a way that We long for your wisdom, and then we cry out for your wisdom, and that when we cry out, we would find your mercy, your grace, and your peace taking over and transforming us. So give us ears to hear what Jesus has to say this morning, even when they come in surprising packages of words and could seemingly insult. Give us ears to hear so that we will understand his way of mercy and grace and think through the avenues and pathways that we must walk down in order to apply it to our world as well. Lord, we thank you for your tremendous forgiveness and the grace that washes over us and that allows us to be cleansed from the inside out. We thank you for the inner working of your Holy Spirit that allows us to experience a whole new life and a new start, a new way of looking at things, a a new mind even as you literally transform the way that we think. Take hold of us who are part of your church first, that you may continue to spread spread mercy and grace widely throughout this world, which is often filled with desperation and brokenness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. On the first year that my dad had four weeks of vacation, our family of six set out on a month-long camping trip, hitting all the national parks between here and Nevada. At the time, my, my brother and I were the youngest of that troop. We were nine and ten years old that summer. And when we got to the Grand Canyon, one, the first thing that we noticed was the vastness and the beauty of the canyon. The second thing that we noticed, my brother and I, that is, was that there was a sheer drop from the south rim to the bottom of the canyon, 
And then as we were walking along the pathway, there was a short wall that was only about three feet high. And as we looked over, about five feet below, there was a pathway as people were beginning to walk down. And where my folks were situated, there were several feet back from us. And my brother and I made a run for that wall and jumped over the wall and down onto that pathway about five feet below. My mother just about had a heart attack. From what the view that she had, we were diving over the wall and into this bottomless canyon all the way down. But really, it was just a few feet down. And, and then we poked our heads up, and, and I'm sure that we got it that day. And soon we all left. Now here's the point of telling that story. Safety is a good thing. And what my folks longed for in that moment was the knowledge of safety while my brother and I were taking a, a very modified risk just to in, in order to cause a little bit of panic. Fewer of us would ever have made it to adulthood without safety measures insisted upon by our parents especially the boys in the crowd. Someone coined the term safety culture to describe all of the measures that our parents and our society at large invents to keep us from harm. Some of us in this room are old enough to remember when cars did not have mandatory seat belts, let alone infant seats and, and child car seats that, that keep improving with quality just about every year. The workplace is a better environment in many, many places because several workers, unions, and employers have put their minds together in order to create not just rules, but a safety culture that prevents harm and promotes wiser, safer practices. You might even say that this safety culture mindset dominates much of life today, so much so that a downside to safety cultures has emerged. For several years, cautious moms and dads who fear letting their children out of their sight have been referred to as helicopter parents, always hovering close by. Now, that term was originated from a book called Parents and Teenagers back in 1969 by Dr. Chaim Ginnett, describing parents who are constantly hovering over their kids. By 2011, that term had made its way into the dictionary because it had been so popularly understood. I wonder of today's cancel culture if that is not a byproduct of an overdependence on this safety culture mindset. Now, it's not enough to put up barriers and belts, using the wrong word, the wrong image, or forming an association with the wrong candidate or the wrong crowd can cause instant removal from a group or from social media today. This cancel culture has spread so quickly that it is nearly impossible to keep up with its complexity. Okay, please don't cancel me because I just said all of that. <laughs> I want you to know why I raised these issues this morning. The story of the dialogue between Jesus and this Canaanite woman from Matthew 15 and Mark 7 is one of the most perplexing and risky conversations we find in the entire gospel and in the entire Bible it wouldn't pass the test of safety monitors in terms of careful speech tactics. Yet, if we were to ignore it, we would miss out on discovering several keys to developing a resilient faith, the kind of faith that Jesus commended here as great faith at the conclusion of this conversation. So this is the final installment on our Resilient series. We've been calling this series of Sundays Resilient, Building a Faith that Lasts Through Chaos and Change. 
And part of the reason for that focus is this is exactly what we're going through right now, a time of unprecedented chaos and change. And and our hope is to be resilient Christians who rise through this time, who shine through this time, and who actually lead the way in applying the gospel to life. So good morning, my North River friends, both here in Pembroke, all around the South Shore, in your homes, and those of you who are watching from several other states. Thank you for considering this question with us over the past few weeks. We are asking God to make us resilient Christians in times of chaos and change. One of the great surprises over the past several months is that North River has been actually growing during this time. Nearly every Sunday I am meeting someone new who was invited by by a friend who's here in the room, or we are hearing from someone else watching online who has discovered us from a distance. So let me say again, if you find this helpful to your faith development, please tell a friend. Invite your friend to watch or to come with you and then find a way to get a cup of coffee together or a meal together or take a walk outside together and talk about what you are learning and about what it means to follow Jesus in these ways in this time. I want to raise a couple of questions this morning before I dive deeper into this. What makes faith conversations risky? And as you hear this gospel passage read from two different gospels, Mark and then Matthew this morning, what made this woman's risky faith so commendable in Jesus' eyes where he says at the end of this encounter, you have great faith. That's what I long for. I I would imagine that's what you long for too. Not just to have a, a barely hanging on surviving faith, but to have something that Jesus would commend as great faith in the midst of our times. So I'd like to present this story to you as an example of risky faith in a culture of safety. The first key that we see is her sense of desperation. Verse 23 in Matthew 15 says, So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. So let's frame the picture for a moment. Jesus and the disciples had gone away for a little bit of R&R time. Matthew uses an interesting word. He says that Jesus withdrew. What was he withdrawing from? Most likely, it was relentless pressure. Jesus was under constant pressure more than two years into his three-year public ministry. Pressure from crowds that followed him everywhere he went. For instance, one time he got on a boat and went to the other end of the lake to get away from the crowds. And when they landed, they found that the crowd had just traveled along the shore all the way. And there they were. And it was such a problem that he had to figure out how he would feed 5,000 people that day. Because they were so intent on collecting every morsel of words that Jesus spoke. There was pressure from knowing that King Herod Antipas had killed John the Baptist. And they were wondering, would Jesus be next on the hit list? And there was pressure from the parade of Pharisees and Old Testament teachers of the law who kept making their way from Jerusalem up to Galilee where Jesus was teaching in order order to verbally spar with Jesus and to challenge his teaching at every turn. At every possible opportunity, they created conflict for him. So Jesus and the disciples withdrew for a little bit. They went to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were two small cities in modern-day Lebanon, just over Israel's border. They were about 30 and 50 miles from the region where Jesus had set up his ministry center, and they were both resort towns along the Mediterranean Sea. 
So we see that even Jesus needed times of rest and relaxation every once in a while. Mark's gospel account of the same scenario adds that they were staying in a house and Jesus was trying to keep their presence secret. Think of this as going away for a weekend getaway to Cape Cod and turning off the phones. You don't want anybody to interfere. You really just want some downtime. But for Jesus, there was very rarely downtime, in part because of who he was, in part because the needs around him were so great. And this woman enters the scene. And the first thing that we discover is that she was desperate. She had a few strikes against her, at least in terms of the way that Jews and non-Jews related in that period of time. There was conflict between the Jewish people and the Gentile people over these border towns. And as she enters into the story, she's a pagan, not Jewish. Most likely she worshipped Astarte, the dominant idol of that city. She was culturally from one of Israel's past enemies. Matthew can't resist referring to her as a Canaanite, bringing up the old terms from all the way back in the days of Moses. And she's a woman approaching a Jewish teacher. The Pharisees of that day would have referred to her as a dirty dog. They used that kind of terminology for people of other cultures. And now she has become a nuisance to the disciples. They want to shoo her away, and they're annoyed that she keeps calling after them. She was not a safe person for them. She was a nuisance. And isn't it amazing how Jesus always enters into the messy middle where we fear to go, and yet ministry is going to happen right there in that messy middle where mercy is needed. Why was she desperate? Nobody had answers to her daughter's demonic condition. You and I are uncomfortable even reading stories like this. She had probably already consulted the idols of her city and now was disillusioned with that religion. She was likely afraid for her daughter's life, wondering where this would lead. And so when she heard that Jesus and his disciples had entered her small town, she was blown away and she began to find them, to search for them, and she approached Jesus, the popular teacher from her cultural enemies. And now it looked like Jesus' disciples were going to reject her again. We just sang this line in the song that I I had to write down. There's not a place where your mercy and grace won't find me again. See, these are the the attitudes of Jesus. And Jesus engaged with her anyway, even though the disciples were ready to push her away. Here's one thing that I've learned about Jesus over the years. Jesus was much more comfortable with desperate people and unsafe people than we usually are. And there are an awful lot of situations in our broken world that leads to desperation. Desperation comes when it seems like there's nowhere else to turn. Think of the parent of a child who is suicidal, and you have to drop that child off at a residential psych facility, and it rips your heart out. Meet with the parent whose child has become addicted to an illegal drug, and then gets that dreaded call early one morning saying that your daughter or your son has been found unresponsive. I can do this for you. I've, I've walked with too many families from this church who quietly lived fearing that this was the morning. Every morning when they, were, when they would wake up, they, they would get that particular call. And then I remember getting a call one Sunday 
just as I was leaving to drive home from here after a couple of services and my phone rang and it was a family from our church saying, can you come to the hospital? Our child has been found unresponsive. It's an overdose. I need you to pray over my child. There's nothing that makes you more desperate than going through a moment like that. That family's child was in a coma. Of course I would come and pray. It's interesting because that family and I still talk about this scenario today, years later, when their child literally woke up a few days later as I was praying over that child. And in a moment of absolute confusion and, and being startled to life after three days in a coma, this child looked at me and swore the most ridiculous swear words you could think of, looking at me in absolute confusion and wondering why was I there and what was going on and why was the whole body going crazy. And instantly the doctors and nurses rushed into that room. Because this child swore at me that way, they all of a sudden knew a whole bunch of things. There was cognition. This child could speak. There was no brain damage. There was recognition of other people. And soon they could ask questions and locate sources of pain. And, and it was such a great thing. It's the best condition or situation of somebody swearing at me I've ever had in my life. <laughs> because it meant life in that moment. It was a moment of great desperation, though. It was messy and it was wonderful all at the same time. A day of desperation that turned into a day of joy. One thing that made this woman's faith great was that she was so desperate for Jesus to break through. Here's the second key that we discover about her risky faith in a culture of safety. She was actually repentant. Verse 22 says, A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy. Mercy is undeserved favor or grace. Mercy is never owed. It is only granted. Why did she plead for mercy? Again, she was an outsider to Jesus and the Twelve. She had nowhere left to turn. Most likely, she had prayed to the idols and got no response, no help whatsoever. And she knew enough about Jesus, just enough, to know that he had authority to heal. That tells us that the stories of Jesus healing people and ministering to the crowds in Israel had spread. So this wasn't known only in Israel, but the news had leaped over the borders. Jesus may have been on the down low for a weekend vacation, but she learned he was there and notice how she stood at her distance and pled for, more, for mercy. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Over and over again, making herself a nuisance to the disciples. So she pled for mercy and she called him Lord. This term alone doesn't mean that she necessarily understood Jesus as the son of God, but adding son of David to it brings an understanding that this was a messianic title, that he was the one that had been awaited for so long. And when she came closer, she prostrated herself. 
That, that's what the Greek term for kneel here in our text actually means. And she laid down flat on the ground and prostrated herself before Jesus. This is the posture of repentance. This is the posture of a person who is saying, I have no standing before you. You of all people, you are sent by God. And there she was flat on the, on the ground before Jesus. Not only was she desperate and repentant, the third key is she was willing to risk rejection. So again, we go back to Matthew 15, verse 23. So his disciples urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Look at the disciples for a minute. They were clearly annoyed with this situation and with her. They saw her as a nuisance because she kept on calling out and calling out and drawing attention to them and to her. Perhaps they were embarrassed by her behavior or by her level of desperation. Perhaps they had been looking forward to quiet walks on the beach with Jesus and she was disturbing all of that or preventing it. And now this week already was not turning out the way they expected to, but she just kept on calling. She didn't give up. Now the question was whether Jesus would, re would join them and reject her too. And notice what he does. At first, Jesus simply responds with silence. He lets this scene play out. Their annoyance is growing. Her desperation is also rising side by side. Perhaps he was watching his disciples. Perhaps he was testing the disciples. They had just left a confrontation with the Pharisees where they op openly questioned the freedom from religious legalism that Jesus' disciples showed in regard to hand-washing routines before eating. For them, it wasn't about cleanliness, it was about religiosity. And it became obvious that Jesus had a different view of who and what was clean or unclean. Clearly, the disciples did not see this as a moment or a person worthy of Jesus' time. And yet there she was, calling out and risking rejection. There are a whole lot of people who fear being rejected by church people today. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever heard complaints about judgmental Christians? People don't just make that up from thin air, you know. Most of us who've been around church for a long time have a lot to repent for, and that includes me. I get into this point in this passage, and I want to say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. Let me apply this to myself and my discovery point recently. People who have struggled greatly with a variety of sexual sins fear being rejected by the church and church people. Think of some of the, the hottest debates that go on in our world today. North River's theological position is that we believe and uphold traditional biblical views about marriage and sexuality. And I never expect that to change around here, certainly not as long as I'm pastor here. And yet, we know at the same time that we have this command from Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves. So for the past few years, I've been on the board for an organization called Posture Shift Ministries. Posture Shift trains pastors and church leaders around the country in how to hold on to historic biblical views of marriage and sexuality while at the same time 
beginning to change the posture of the church toward LGBT people so that we are showing more love and grace than rejection and superiority. That's not an easy thing to do. It's walking into that messy middle again. The response to this training has been amazing. For instance, our church staff has all taken this training. We want to know how to improve our level of care, even though our theology probably puts us in a minority today. In the past year, 10 years, more than 60,000 church leaders across North America have gone through posture shift workshops. Without changing our theology, we are changing our posture to say, have we forgotten to love in the midst of the culture wars that have gone on around us? One of the workshops that this organization has taught when I first got involved was called The Church That Saves Lives. And they recognize that statistically when teenagers wrestle with different kinds of thoughts about who they are in terms of their sexual identity, the level of suicidality rises eightfold. And so they're recognizing if we could just create church environments that still hold on to, to historic teaching and yet can create an atmosphere of love and acceptance in the midst of that, we have the possibility of helping a whole lot of teenagers live long enough so they can think more deeply and they can reckon with God over time for how their lives will begin to respond to His grace. I've talked with many pastors from around the country through this involvement. One pastor told me that his church tried for a long time to avoid taking a position on this matter and slowly realized they were just hurting people by trying to be cute and to trying to always avoid clear answers. But he said he's continually amazed by how, by how hurt LGBT people are and their families within the church. Sadly, I am finding there are many of these rejection stories all around this theme. But when we see cultural outsiders as people to be loved and people who need the transformational gospel, God can do great things. Great things. Back to our story. The disciples were ready to reject this woman and send her on her way. But Jesus... But Jesus was patiently drawing out her faith, I believe, to teach them a lesson. Here's the big idea that I want to insert at this moment, the central idea of this message. Jesus rewards people who risk everything for His mercy. He constantly rewards people. Here's the fourth key in her story. She was willing to endure a risky conversation. This is the most off-putting conversation in the entire gospel. And yet, it's one of the most fascinating. I'm in Matthew 15, verse 24. Jesus answers and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Listen to her response. Yes, it is, Lord, she replied. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This has to be one of the most awkward conversations ever recorded in and called Scripture. Now, one possibility behind this is that Jesus displayed a horrible bedside manner and he just was really rough with people. But is that the Jesus you know? That, that, doesn't, that explanation doesn't fit best. Another possibility is that Jesus was negative at first but changed his mind. Some theologians think that's what, that's what happened. 
But it is also possible that Jesus was using this conversation in order to bring something out and to test his disciples. I believe that this third option is what Jesus was doing here. He risked hurting this woman with his language in order to draw out her great faith. He knew something about her. The disciples had nearly shooed her away, seeing her as little value. Speaking to them, but looking at her, Jesus now speaks about his mission, their view of his mission. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That seemed to be the principle that the disciples were acting on and shooing her away. So Jesus wants to test that out. Okay, is God's concern, is the ultimate mission of the kingdom of heaven only about this one nation, our people, the people that I was sent to first? Was that the entire mission? Yes, Jesus came to offer the kingdom and his grace to Israel first. But was it the entire mission? What about the way that Jesus had earlier, back in chapter 8 of the same gospel, commended the faith of the Roman centurion? Had not the interracial and multi-ethnic part of this mission already been unleashed on the world? And then what Jesus thought he saw in her was confirmed. When he said, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, he was in a sense using a, a short parable. He used a term that can mean a little dog or a puppy, but he also used this, a term that reflect the cultural rejection that Jews and Canaanites felt toward each other in that time. The potential for insult was all over this conversation. Yet this woman responded with wisdom and resilience. She said, yes, it is. It would be wrong to take bread from the children who are to be fed first and give it to the dogs, she, she means. But then she goes on and she adds, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, do you hear what she was saying here? She was saying, Jesus, I don't need to be your first priority. I understand that your first priority was bringing this message of God's kingdom to the people of Israel first, because that's where God had started. But if you are who I think you are, just the crumbs off your table are enough for me. I get news for you. Sometimes that's exactly where we're at. If we could just get close enough to Jesus because of how good Jesus is, just the crumbs that fall off his table would be enough to feed us and to have that kind of proximity. This woman's wisdom was so over the top with that reply. She's saying, that's all the mercy I need, just the crumbs that are left over. Jesus rewards people who risk everything for his mercy. And she had risked rejection. She had risked being pushed away. She had risked her desperation being exposed to the world. She had risked her repentance not being enough. She had been willing to risk this very awkward, unusual, potentially hurtful conversation. And then we find that Jesus rewards her combination of risk and faith. The final verse of Matthew's account says, Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. 
this woman persists, risks rejection, and hears Jesus say these amazing words, you have great faith, your request is granted. Just like that, she became the exemplar of faith and the disciples, the ones who were shocked. Just like that, a despised, annoying Canaanite woman teaches the disciples about the depths of faith. Just like that, as Jesus beams his approval at her. It would have been safer for Jesus to send her away because she was an uncomfortable person, she was a nuisance, or she was from a group of people that weren't a priority, or were seen as immoral and worshiping another god. And he could just focus on the primary mission of Israel. It would have been safer for him to ignore her pleas. But just like that, this annoying, persistent woman became an example of resilient faith. And just like that, her faith became the example Jesus passed on to his disciples. For them to look at groups of people who've been forgotten. And just like that, the outsider finds mercy, healing, and grace. This is why God's gospel of good news is such a power of transformation in our world. This is why longtime Jesus followers continually need to hear the gospel preached to us over again so that we don't think that we have somehow captured it all, but it forces us to expand our horizons in terms of where God wants to work. Jesus rewards people who risk everything for his mercy. He rewards all kinds of unusual people. This unnamed woman becomes another person who models risky faith, along with the Ethiopian eunuch who hears the gospel and takes it back to Africa, along with the centurion who tells Jesus, just say the word, Jesus. You don't need to even come to my, to my house. I know that you have such authority. If you just say the word, my servant will be healed. Along with the men with five and two talents who invest and risk and bring back a return rather than burying it in the ground like the man who was given that one talent and buried it along with the woman who silently reached out to touch Jesus, just the hem of his garment in the crowd, along with John and the women who stood at the foot of the cross while others ran and they were publicly identified, along with Joseph of Arimathea who asked for permission to take Jesus' body down. She becomes another person who models risky faith. Jesus rewards people who risk everything for the sake of mercy. I'm so glad he does. I have a final question. Perhaps you're one of those folks either watching online or here in the room where you've been trying to figure out how you take steps closer to Jesus and you're evaluating. Well, have you come to that point where you will risk your reputation in order to publicly identify with Jesus? That's what he asks us to do. Come out of the shadows Claim him as Lord. Let other people know, Jesus is my rock. Jesus is my source of hope when I am desperate. Jesus is the one that I cling to. Jesus is the one who shows me the way. Maybe you will pray this prayer with me. I'm going to invite you to do that. It'll show up on your screen if you're watching online. It'll show up behind me here in the room. But let's pray this out loud together. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Forgive me and make me whole. Give me the courage to come out of the shadows and join the fellowship of those who live by grace 
and who dare to find ways to share God's good news with the world. Lord Jesus, I pray for our congregation wherever we are that you will make us resilient people who have a faith that does not shrink when we become a minority in a culture that maybe only gives lip service to God. That we will find a resilient faith that stands up strong, even though tested, even though rocked in the midst of the different challenges that are presented to us in life and the curveballs that seem to get thrown our way. That you will give us a resilient faith even when times of doubt work their way in because we have seen you transform the lives of all kinds of people. Lord, give us the kind of resilient faith that never gives up and never believes that anybody is so far from your grace that your transforming work cannot change a mind and a heart and the trajectory of a life. And use us in that process. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, the Lord, the Son of David. Amen. Friends, thank you for being with us during this series. And my hope and prayer is that you and I will become more and more resilient with our faith that we will apply it to the challenges of life and that we will get in there where things are messy to see what God is up to because our world is messy and grace transforms people who are broken and who are messy as well.